Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, Jesus and the Law. The law was a confusing and controversial topic in the first century, and it is still so today. The entire New Testament was written in the midst of a great conflict over the law, and understanding that conflict is essential to understanding what Jesus and the apostles were saying, not only about the law, but about the nature of God and his intentions for and relationship with man, and ultimately about the gospel itself. So while the law may be a difficult and even frustrating topic, it is not one we can ignore, any more than Jesus and the apostles did. Trying to understand what exactly Jesus and the apostles were saying about the law is like trying to understand a debate when you can only hear one side of it. Now add the fact that this debate took place in another language and culture 2,000 years ago. One thing for sure is that we must pay careful attention to all the evidence and ensure that any hypothesis we come up with squares with all the evidence and not just some of it. I hope this sermon will help you sort through the biblical evidence as you search the scriptures. Enjoy the sermon, and thanks for listening. Our message this morning will come from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is the Word of God. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. God and Father, we give you thanks for your, your word that you've given to us for hope and encouragement. And we pray that by the Spirit this day that you would do just that, that you would build us up, give us hope and encouragement, fill us full of faith and love, that we might be to your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are getting into the meat of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that uh, Matthew's narrative is one of Jesus reliving the story of Israel so that Jesus is becoming true Israel that he might bring God's people to enter into their calling and into their destiny. And so as uh, Israel was called out of Egypt, so was Jesus As Israel was baptized, so was Jesus. As Israel was led into the wilderness and tempted, so was Jesus. As Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain without food and water, so did Jesus. And as Moses received the law on a mountain and preached a series of sermons on the law, so uh, Jesus is now preaching a sermon on the law to his disciples. So this is what is going on. So this sermon is about the law. And just as Moses, when he preached the law in Deuteronomy, talked a lot about God's blessings 
that would come to His people if they were faithful. So Jesus begins His sermon, as we saw last week, talking about the great blessings. And basically all the blessings that He lists in the Beatitudes are the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It was all blessings that were promised in the Old Testament that Israel was continually falling short of. And Jesus is saying, now they are coming true. Now they will be yours as my disciples uh, as you inherit the kingdom of heaven. But he tells them that they're going to go through a time of intense persecution on the front end. And having talked about the blessings of the law and their calling, now Jesus turns to the requirements of the law. And you know, the law is a very confusing and controversial topic still today in the evangelical church. And there's so many mixed signals about the law in the Bible. We have the psalmist uh, crying out, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We have the very first psalm telling us that the blessed man is the one who meditates in the law day and night. In fact, the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, which is an ode to God's law. And it was given in a period of captivity, and it's part of God's answer to the question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And part of the answer is, you still have God's Word. You still have His law. And yet, we look at all these great things about the law, and then we have to ask, though, what good did the law do to Israel? Paul says that it was a ministry of death in 2 Corinthians. Paul adamantly and repeatedly says that we're not saved by the works of the law. And we know that Jesus was in conflict with the Pharisees. And we know that the Pharisees were obsessed with the law. And isn't it the case that right here, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is basically saying that He's going to keep this code, this external behavioral code that requires moral perfection. He's going to keep it, and then He's going to set it aside. I mean, isn't that what He's doing in the Sermon on the Mount? Is replacing the old external requirements with a bunch of new, higher, spiritual, internal requirements. So we have all these negative things about the law. But then on the other hand, we have Jesus telling us, in fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, that the whole law is really about loving God and loving one's neighbor. And what about Paul's statement in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, which really comes at the end of the longest sustained discussion about the law in the New Testament, at least by Paul. And his conclusion is to say, that Jesus has, I mean, God has sent His own Son on account of sin and condemned sin in the flesh through Christ. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we have all these mixed signals from Scripture. And the temptation when we look at all this is basically just to chunk it. And say, it's too difficult. And so where we're typically left as evangelicals today is just say, this is too much confusion, this is too hard for me, I can't sort this out, I don't know, but we're left being very suspicious of the law. Because Paul again and again and again is saying, we're not justified by the works of the law. So we can't sort it out, 
but we're just going to kind of chunk it. It's too hard, but we're going to hold it at arm's length because we are suspicious of it. I mean, what practical difference does it really make for us in our day-to-day Christian lives? I mean, we know that Jesus Christ is the Savior, right? We know that. We know that we are His disciples. And so, what else do we need? I mean, Jesus tells us a lot of things that we're supposed to be doing in the New Testament, and so what else do we need? But when we really think about it, think about it more deeply, and go about our lives, we realize that it really does make a lot of practical difference. Look at how many Christians today are really confused and conflicted over what it means to live for Christ each day, because every Christian would admit that we're supposed to live for Christ, right? Every Christian would admit that we're supposed to be, you know, whatever phrase you want to use, on fire for the Lord, whatever. We're supposed to be living for Christ. And yet, so many Christians today are conflicted about, okay, how far can you go with that? I mean, is it okay to try to live for Christ? Is it okay to try to be obedient? What about those areas where being a Christian just isn't enough. It doesn't make us obedient. What about those areas where we really have to work hard because we've got deep issues and each one of us has that? In at least one area and probably half a dozen areas. What, what about those areas where it seems like a belly crawl? I mean, it seems like a lot of sweat and blood and it seems like a hard work. I mean, when does that become works? Right? Because wasn't the Old Testament about doing And then the New Testament is about believing, right? Isn't that what it means? Not by works, but by faith. Not by doing, but by believing. Not by being active, but by being passive. I mean, isn't it about letting go and letting Jesus? And of course, we know that at some level it is, but at every level, I mean, there are a lot of Christians today are conflicted about how do I live for Christ? How do I grow in sanctification and not be guilty of seeking to be justified by the law, not being guilty of works. And then, on a broader scale, what about those areas that Christ and the New Testament don't specifically address? You may be wondering, well, what in the world would they not address that would be of concern for us as a culture? Well, what about something like pedophilia? What about bestiality? nothing in the New Testament about either one of those. And you may think, well, look, that's kind of ridiculous. We don't need any specific guidance on that because nobody is going to say that pedophilia or bestiality is okay. Nobody's going to say that. Well, just think about that for a moment. Because our society is plummeting and our culture is pushing the boundaries, especially sexual boundaries, more and more each day. Think about where we were 50 years ago. The unthinkable 50 years ago is now not only thinkable, it's required opinion if you want the approval of polite society. And so it will not be long the way we are going until the question is asked publicly and with a straight face. Why is pedophilia wrong if it's part of a loving, committed relationship? Do you not hear that argument today? In a slightly different context, why should a 40-year-old man not be able to marry a 10-year-old girl or a 10-year-old boy, for that matter? Why should such couples be discriminated against? Why should they not have the equal protection of the law 
and the right to be married, why shouldn't their loving, caring, committed relationship be graced with the same uh, social prestige of the label marriage? Isn't the real problem the pedophobes who hate them, who engage in hate speech and hate think? We're to the hate speech level now. It's not going to be long before we're to the hate think level. So the question is, the New Testament says nothing about those. Can we look to the Old Testament law to show us God's will when we're faced with such societal and cultural questions? And on a more personal level, can we say today as believers with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. What about the blessed man of Psalm 1? The, whole, the portal to the, to the Psalter talking about the blessed one. What about the blessed one today? The one who bears his fruit in his season, whose leaves do not wither, who prospers in whatsoever he does. Is it still the one who delights in the law of the Lord and in his law meditates day and night. Is James right when he says that he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he calls it, and continues in it, not being a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer? Sounds like works to me. But James says this is the one who is blessed in what he does. So we see when we really think about it, it has a lot of practical difference for us as individual Christians and for our whole society. Well, why is this so confusing? Well, because the ministry of Jesus, as well as the writing of the whole New Testament, occurred in the midst of a huge debate and battle over the law. And while the law was the touchstone, that was, the, that was what was being debated on the surface, we can see that what was really being debated as they were debating the law is the whole nature of really, who is God? What has He created us for? What's His relationship with us? What's His fundamental relationship with us? I mean, we know that through Christ He's loved us. He's given His own Son uh, to bear our sins, to bring us to Him. We know He's doing loving things now, but does that reflect the fundamental nature of God? Or was His fundamental nature something different? Is that what He created us for? Or is that just something He had to do to get us out of the ditch? I mean, what were we created for in the beginning? Were we created to be His children and to walk in love and faith with Him? Or were we created to be His slaves, His employees, and, 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 to, and to earn our way under some kind of a rule book? You know, it, it, it's important, isn't it? That we not just know what God has done for us in Christ, but we know if that really reflects and shows us who He is and what we were created for. Doesn't it make a difference if God is fundamentally a slave master or a, an employer or if He's fundamentally a father? It makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And that's what really with all the debate was concerning the law that was going on in the first century. And so this gives us an extra challenge as we come to the Scriptures and we try to understand what is going on with the law because to understand the New Testament teaching about the law, we have to understand the debate. Because most of the stuff we've had written to us is part of the debate. Now imagine trying to understand an argument from hearing one side of a phone conversation. 
okay? You're listening to your, your husband or your wife or your friend. You're at their house and they're on the phone. And you can only hear what they're saying and you can tell, ooh, they're into it with somebody. There's a, there's a big discussion, a heavy discussion and debate going on here. You're trying to piece it together. You only can hear one side of the conversation. Okay, that's basically what we have in the New Testament. We have one side of this debate. Now imagine that you're trying to understand that same debate that you were overhearing on the phone conversation, except you don't get to hear it anymore. You just have a transcript. You have it written down on a page, one side of the debate. So now you lose all the tone of voice. You lose all the, those kind of things that would give you cues if you could actually hear it. You would have cues as to when uh, the person you were listening to was speaking facetiously, when they were using sarcasm, when they were using irony, when they were taking up the other side's phraseology and arguments and turning them around. You know, you'd have verbal cues as to all of that if you could actually hear it. But if you write it down on a page, you have none of that. You only have words. So you have a transcript of one side of the debate. And let's add to that the fact that the debate took place in another language. Another language. Now it's been translated and you're reading it in English. So now you're losing all the little idioms and the phrases that, that would pertain in the other language. They don't pertain in English. You're losing that. And now let's assume in addition to all that that this is debate that took place in another culture 2,000 years ago. And to understand what's going on in God's Word, you need to understand the debate. Now, the first question to pop up in your mind is probably going to be, is this really necessary? This gets us back to the, this is too hard argument. Is this really necessary? Well, the answer is yes. It is necessary. God wants us to understand His Word. He could have written His Word in a pristine environment. He could have written it on top of a mountain in Tibet with lotus blossoms floating on a calm pool. But he didn't. He chose to write almost all of his word in the midst of conflict and confusion, which means he wrote it in this world, feet on the ground, in the midst of fallen humanity and all that fallen humanity does. And part of us growing to maturity as God's children is learning to understand these things. And you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing, kids. If you kind of look on this whole thing like a mystery a mystery that we're having to put together. In fact, one of the most famous mystery novels uh, of all time that's rated in the top two or three is, is called The Daughter of Time. And it's about Josephine Tay. And the, the, the hero in the story is a Scotland Yard inspector who is laid up in the hospital because he's broken his leg. So he can't go out and do his normal work. And he's bored to death. And so one of his friends, a lady brings him some, some history books because his specialty is reading people. Reading people, being able to read their body languages, being able to read their faces and so forth. And so he's looking through all these books. She brings him history books about uh, uh, you know, the history and different things that are going on. And so he takes up, he comes across a picture of Richard. I can't remember if it was the second or third. The hunchback in, in the, in the uh, play by Shakespeare, it's the hunchback king who supposedly killed his nephews so that he could get the way to the throne. 
And he gets engrossed in this whole historical mystery and starts looking at it and comes to the conclusion, first of all, God didn't have a hunchback. Second of all, didn't kill his nephews. Third of all, one of the greatest smear jobs of all history and, and uh, in terms of, of, of framing him for this and that this wasn't who he was at all. But anyway, he's solving this mystery that took place hundreds of years before. And it's a really a fascinating book. And that's kind of what God calls us to. And if we look upon it in that way, we can see, oh, we don't have to look upon it as a burden. We can look upon, this is kind of fun, really, when you think about it. This, this is kind of cool that God challenges us as his children to grow up in this way. And indeed, our maturity depends in part on our ability to really search out his word, to sleuth our way through the word of God in a lot of instances putting together the clues, putting together the evidence. But one of the things that's true, for sure, when we look at the challenges of solving this mystery, is that we have to be really careful with the evidence. We cannot be like the well-meaning inspector, uh, I mean the well-meaning constable who always shows up at the very beginning of the Agatha, Agatha Christie mysteries. It's the first one on the murder scene who comes in and finds the suicide note and says, ah, Case solved, suicide, it's clear. Or comes in and finds uh, the gun uh, in the butler's quarters and says, ah, it's clear, the butler did it. And of course, what it appears to be at first is never true. We have to be like the master uh, sleuth, Hercule Perrault or Miss Marple or uh, one of the Scotland Yard inspectors. Because the constable, while he's well-meaning, and he's looking at some of the evidence and his uh, solution accounts very well for some of the evidence. It doesn't account for all the evidence. And that's what the master sleuth always does. The truth will always account for all of the evidence, not just some of it. And so that's the attitude we need to have when we go to God's word. And if you want to be a master detective, and I've seen this in law enforcement, if you want to be a really good detective, you have to be willing to set aside a so-called good hypothesis in favor of no hypothesis in order to come up with the true hypothesis. Sometimes you have to set aside something that seemed like it worked good. You just put it totally away. When you have nothing really to replace it with, because you have evidence coming in that's contradicting and you have to live with the chaos for a while until the truth really appears. And we have to be willing to do that. So with that in mind, let's turn to what Jesus says here. The first thing he says to his disciples before he starts talking about what the law means is do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. His words here are emphatic. In the Greek, they read more like this. Don't even begin to think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, he says this because in first century Galilee, his words in this sermon would naturally lead to that conclusion. It is going to be clear throughout this sermon that Jesus is taking a jackhammer to something. And whatever it is he's taking a jackhammer to has something to do with the law. So what is it he's destroying? Well, it's not the law, but it's what the scribes and the Pharisees had done to the law. And Jesus wants to make that clear right up front. 
In that setting, though, the scribes and the Pharisees were synonymous with the law of God. The law is us. That's basically what the scribes and Pharisees said. The law is us. And that's the way the people tended to, uh, to uh, think of it. And so Jesus wants to subvert that perception. He wants to change that perception. He wants the people to see that the scribes and Pharisees are actually the enemies of the law. Jesus wants to drive a wedge between the law and the scribes and Pharisees so that he can take a jackhammer to them while exalting the law. So Jesus says emphatically, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. And then he says it a second time in verse 17, the latter part. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then in verse 18, he says it a third time. Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. And then in the first part of verse 19, he says it a fourth time, a fourth different way. Whoever breaks the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Not least in Old Testament Israel who was trying to earn its salvation, but least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he doesn't say that you can't get into the kingdom of heaven until you have a perfect understanding of the law. Thank God. Thank you. No, that's not what gets you in to the kingdom of heaven. But he says you will be considered least of the kingdom of heaven if you are, in fact, teaching and living against the law. And then finally, in the latter part of verse 19, he says it again for the fifth time. Whoever does and teaches the law shall be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. And he says this is true for the least of the commands. Now, when we hear that, we hear all that, and we still, as evangelicals, persist in thinking that nevertheless, what Jesus is doing is setting aside this Old Testament version of earning your salvation in favor of his own new high spiritual inner standards. But what we have to realize is that everything that Jesus is going to shortly say about the law was something already required in the law. And this is where, again, our lack of knowledge of the Old Testament really lets us down. For example the new higher inner standard that Jesus is going to apply when he says we're not to hate. He's simply echoing Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take vengeance nor bear grudge against any of the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law said. When Jesus says, love your enemy, he is echoing both Moses and and Solomon, Moses, Exodus chapter 23, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Solomon, Proverbs chapter 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. Jesus is going to quote exactly that in the latter part of his sermon. And when we read it, we go, oh, what marvelous words of higher spirituality and inner uh, truth. Jesus is just quoting the Old Testament. He's bringing the people back to what the law was really saying all along. 
when Jesus says lust is a form of adultery. He's merely applying the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that is your neighbor's. So Jesus is not giving a new law. He's chiseling the barnacles off of the law. But when the people see Jesus holding a hammer and a chisel up to the law, they're naturally going to think that he's going at the law itself. And Jesus wants to make it crystal clear that he's going at the barnacles that are obscuring the law and not the law itself. He's trying to reveal the law so the gold of the law can shine forth. And then finally, at the end of this passage in verse 20, Jesus drops a bombshell. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this sent shockwaves through the crowd, but not for the reasons that we think. We, again, our, our common understanding today as evangelicals is to say, well, what he's really saying there is the Pharisees were trying to earn their salvation, which was the law way in the Old Testament, and you have to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Of course, we do have to have the righteousness of Christ. It's the only way that we're saved. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. You have to remember that righteousness the closest synonym that we have to righteousness in the Old Testament use is really faithfulness. It meant living up to what was required in a particular relationship. That's what righteousness was in the Old Testament. And so it really meant love, faith, loyalty, living up to all that was required in a relationship. And what Jesus is saying to them is that your faithfulness to God has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Your, let's, let's put it in evangelical terms. Your daily walk with Christ, your personal relationship with God, has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And what would have sent shockwaves through the crowd is that the Pharisees held themselves up as, and they were seen as, by the crowds of the day as being basically the, the poster children for walking with God, faithfulness, holiness, spirituality, and all that that meant. And to tell the disciples, your faithfulness, your walk with God, your personal relationship with Him has to exceed theirs or you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven would have really seemed to set before them a standard that was unreachable. But Jesus is being, he's, he's being crazy like a fox here. Not crazy, but crazy like a fox. What he, the point that he's really making is that the scribes and the Pharisees did not keep the law, nor did they teach the law. The zeal and the rigor of the scribes and Pharisees tended to be in things that the law didn't actually require, like the separation from Gentiles that they required. What they did was took the cleanness code that Hebrews weren't supposed to uh, eat certain things or touch certain things, and that was all part of a way of teaching them different things. Um, but... What, what, what the Pharisees did was build on a tradition that had built up that said, look, 
if we're not supposed to do something to be unclean, well, what we really need to do is to make sure that we don't do anything to inadvertently become unclean. And then they had built that up to where it became that you do not eat with anybody who is uncircumcised. You don't eat with them. Now, that's not what the law required. In fact, the law required the opposite. The law was very clear in the Old Testament, like about the festivals in Israel, when you're supposed to come together and have the joy of the Lord and just have a great time. It was very clear that the stranger and the alien is supposed to be there at the table with you. They're supposed to be included. They could go and worship at the tabernacle and present an offering just like an Israelite. It's very clear. There is one law for you and the stranger of the, and the alien. And you are to love the stranger and the alien because you were strangers and aliens in the land of Egypt. So the people who are supposed to be seated with you at the feast, now the Pharisees have come to say, you may not eat with them at all because you could somehow inadvertently become unclean. And this is what the Pharisees call the works of the law. When you see that phrase in the Bible and you look carefully how it's used, it's always referring to these overblown boundary markers that the Pharisees and scribes had come up with saying, this is what evangelical faith looks like in our day. That's what they were saying. This is what it means. This is what it translates to in our culture. You may not eat with somebody who is uncircumcised. And then they would also throw some uncircumcised people in there too, like tax gatherers and so forth. They called them sinners. Okay, And so when you hear the works of the law, it's not talking about keeping the law, the real law. It's talking about doing these things of separation between circumcised and uncircumcised in particular. But when it came to the things that the law did require, the scribes and Pharisees were not overzealous. In fact, they were underzealous. What did the law really require? What was at the real heart of it according to Jesus? Love, mercy, justice, these kinds of things. Jesus said, look, the scribes and Pharisees, they're experts not at the law of God, but at setting aside the commands of the law of God in favor of their own traditions. Jesus repeatedly called them hypocrites. He said that they stood the law on its head by focusing on the extremities of the law, the skinny branches, and neglecting the heart of the law. As I mentioned, love and justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus said that they looked on the outside, but inside they were full of self-indulgence, self-glory, and greed. And he says that they were willing to take advantage of others in order to pull this off. And one of the big ways that they took advantage of others was always promoting themselves as the vanguard of what it means to love God and to believe in God. They acted super spiritual. They made long prayers for show. But Jesus says that they weren't spiritual at all. They were lovers, he says, of glory. They were lovers of men's praise. And they were also lovers of money. They loved the good life, they loved the esteem, they loved this status as being heroes which they had built up for themselves in the culture of the day. Jesus says that they are exactly the sort of people who would murder a prophet bringing the word of God. And then that's exactly what they're going to do. Not just to a prophet, but to the great prophet, to the capstone of all the prophets, to the Son of God. You heard earlier in our Bible readings the, the parable that Jesus told about God sending servants to his vineyard to collect the fruit from the vineyard, that he may enjoy the fruit 
of his people. And they keep beating and killing the servants. And then the father says, I will send to them my son and they will honor him. And they said, let us take the son and kill him. And then the vineyard will be ours. Jesus is directing that exactly toward the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's what he said you're doing. You've killed the prophets. Now you're going to kill the son of the father who owns the vineyard so that you can run the vineyard. He says, you say you're all about the kingdom, but what you're really doing is hijacking the kingdom of God to make it yours. So Jesus is not saying that his disciples must be even more rigorous than the scribes and Pharisees. That's the way it would have seemed to them on first blush, but that's not what he's saying. Compared to the burdens of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The effect of really coming under what Jesus is actually teaching when the people understand it, even though in some ways it's going to make far more demands on them in terms of love and faithfulness. He's going to call upon them to undergo persecution with love and faithfulness and, and, and perseverance and all these kind of things. It's, in one sense, it's going to require far, far more of them than what the scribes and Pharisees were requiring. But yet the feeling on to them is going to be the feeling of a great weight being lifted off of their shoulders. They're going to realize I've been carrying this heavy pack on my back that God is not asking me to carry. Jesus is saying that his disciples must not be guilty of the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. They must not play the games with the law, twisting it and serve their own self-indulgence and ambition. They must not supplant the law with their own traditions or supplant God's standards with their own standards. And Jesus will go on to expound the law and reacquaint his disciples with what it actually says. Meet again the law, my disciples. Meet it again for the first time. I want you to see what God has really been about all this time. Well, in spite of Jesus' words, all of this, we have a modern tendency to persist in believing that the law was a problem, that Jesus came to get rid of that problem, that that was really the fly in the ointment, was the law. And we tend to think, okay, well, why would God send this fly in the ointment then? And we go, okay, well, he sent it to show us how not to be saved. He sent us to show us where salvation by works leads, to show us that we can't be saved by salvation by works. And that that what the law was really about. It was a false way of salvation. And the point after a hundred years of it is simply that that's a false way. I know that I told you to go that way, but that was really a head fake. I was head faking that way. I'm going this way. And then when, when you see with that kind of thinking, you can see then why so many of the Pharisees and the Jews of Jesus' day were mad because they felt like God had pulled a bait and switch on them. You're leading us this way all this time. And then you yank it out and then you come up with this new thing. Faith in Jesus. What's that? You know, we've been serving you for all these years. And now you have people coming in and into the kingdom of heaven based on faith in Jesus. And they don't have to take on this burden that we've been buried in, in this like, oh, no. Oh, no. 
Anybody coming into the kingdom of heaven needs to bear, and you can, you can see the bitterness on their faces, the same stinking burden that we've been bearing. And nobody's coming in unless they do that. It's the whole older brother in the prodigal son attitude. That's the attitude. But what Jesus is saying, what John the Baptist has been saying, what Paul is going to be saying is that, look, no. You've misunderstood what God's been about all this time. You've misunderstood the law all this time. It's always been about faith in Christ. And God has always shown this by raising up types of Christ. Right? So he raises up a type of Christ named Moses. Or named David. And what happens to those who don't show loyalty to Moses or David? They're cut out of the covenant people. What's the touchstone of being in part of the people. It is looking to faith and loyalty in the type, the type of Christ, Moses, David, and so forth. And the whole law has always been about love and faithfulness to God, about believing Him, about believing in the Messiah to come. Well, this still remains a confusing issue for us, but I want to give you some guide points as we're closing this sermon, some guide points that I want to suggest to you that if you have these guide points in mind, they really do account for all the evidence. But you will have to sleuth for yourself through the Bible. And I'd take these guide points and, uh, and look at the Scriptures, search the Scriptures, and see if this doesn't cause all the evidence to fall into place. Here are the guideposts. First of all, the law is about love. The law is about love. Later in this gospel, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is going to say, Chris read it to us this morning, he says there's two great commandments that all the law is built on. They're affirmative commandments. They are personal commandments. They are relationship commandments. And they are love commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said this, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And we need to start taking Jesus at his word. We need to take it. This is a categorical, unequivocal statement that Jesus, our Savior, the word of God incarnate makes about the law. He says, I'm going to tell you what it's really about, all of it. It's about loving God with all that you are. It's about loving your neighbor as yourself. That is a corner stake. Drive it deep. Drive it strong and leave it alone. And remember it. Don't move it. Remember it when you are dealing with the law. It's about love. And if the law is about love, that means the law is about faith. If the law is about faith. And that brings us to one of the most confusing and controversial uh, statements that, that Paul made in the New Testament. And that's Galatians 3.12, where he says, the law is not of faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk that says, the just shall live by faith. And we go, oh, okay, we got it. That's the difference. The law was a system of works. It was not a faith. It didn't require faith. It didn't involve faith. And now the real form of salvation has come, which is faith. Doing versus believing. Law versus gospel. We see that. But the thing is, you just think about it. Jesus says the law is all about loving God and loving neighbor. Is it possible to love God without believing in Him? Is it possible to love God without faith? Can you love a God you don't believe in? 
Can you serve a God you don't have faith in? Can you trust a God that you don't trust? Is that possible? Well, on the face of it, it is not possible. In fact, Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And presumably, these love commands are all about pleasing God, right? How can you do that without faith? Well, here's the thing. When you look at Galatians 3.12 and Paul's statement that the law is not of faith, Here's a, here's, a, here's a clue to, to, to... Here's a methodology for sleuthing. Here's an important principle for sleuthing your way through the Bible. When you see the New Testament quote or allude to an Old Testament verse or passage, turn back and read it. And don't just read the verse. Read the whole passage. Because the New Testament writers, they're not just quoting the verse. What they're trying to do is bring to mind that whole passage... The whole context, the whole historical context, what was going on. I mean, today, if we want to reference a whole passage, we just, we just cut and paste the whole passage, right? Right in the word processor. They couldn't do that 2,000 years ago. Somebody's writing with a, a quill and ink on a parchment somewhere. And so words and space are precious. And so they're assuming we know the Old Testament and we can call to mind the whole context and what was going on. And so, when you look at Habakkuk, which is what Paul is calling up when he's saying, the just shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk, too. When you go back to Habakkuk and you look, what is the context? What's the problem? What's the prophet writing about and writing against? When you look in chapter 1, you see what the whole book is about. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, The law is powerless. The law is powerless. In other words, what he's saying is that not that the law doesn't require faith, but that the law is powerless to give what it requires. He says, this is, I see what the law requires, and then I look around at Israel. And you don't, you don't see faith. You don't see justice. You don't see righteousness. You don't see love. You don't see mercy. The law is powerless. That's what he's saying. And Paul talks about the same issue when you look at Romans 7, his most extended treatment. The whole chapter is on the law. And that's what he's saying, basically. The law could require, the law could show people how to love God and how to love one's neighbor, but the law could not do is give you the power to do it. And that's the whole problem with the law. So what Paul is saying in Galatians 3.12 is not that the law doesn't require faith. He's saying the law cannot produce faith. The law is not of faith. That's what he means by that. It requires it, but it can't produce it. That's the problem. So the law is about love, and therefore it is about faith. The law is about a covenant bond with God. The law is about a covenant bond with God. And by a covenant bond, I do not mean a business contract. I mean a personal bond. A personal bond that is based on the highest level of love and loyalty and faithfulness. And because it involves those things, it's why God in the Old Testament continually analogizes it to a marriage relationship or a marriage bond. We see that. You see that the most significant passage in the Old Testament talking about the New Covenant Jeremiah 31, he said, I will make a new covenant with my people in that day. He says, it's not going to be like the old covenant, because what was the problem with the old covenant? He says, they didn't keep it. They didn't keep it, though I was married to them, though I was a husband to them. So you, what, what's that doing here? 
What is that doing in this discussion of the law and the new covenant? You see, Paul uses the same analogy in Romans chapter 7. Him explaining the history of us and the law and Christ, he starts talking about husbands and wives. Isaiah chapter 54, which comes right after the suffering servant. The suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed, all of that. That's right in the middle of this lengthy, one of the most glorious extended passages of Scripture. It goes from Isaiah chapter 40 to the end of the book. It's this whole wonderful song of God's salvation. In the middle of it comes this suffering servant passage that talks about how Jesus will bring all these glories to pass. And in the very next chapter, Isaiah 54, he says this, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. In other words, what he's saying is, the suffering servant... And the divine husband are the same person. Jeremiah chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, I remember the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness. When did they go after him in the wilderness? At Sinai. How does he characterize Sinai? As a marriage ceremony, a betrothal. Jeremiah chapter 3. Return, O backsliding children, for I am married to you. Again and again and again. The whole covenant bond thing, he's making clear, it's not a business contract. It's more analogous to a marriage oath. And so the, the theme of God's people as God's bride, you see, that's not some new, new Testament thing. That reaches way back into the Old Testament. Next, the law is given to redeemed sinners. The law is given to sinners who have been redeemed by God. The law was not given to Israel so she could earn her salvation. She was he was given to Israel because God had saved her. What does he say introducing the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage. That's what salvation is, being brought out of the house of bondage. I have saved you, therefore I'm giving you this law. The law did not show Israel how to save herself, but how to love the God who had saved her. Remember Jesus' words. It all is about loving God and neighbor. Next, the law is about covenant faithfulness. The law is about covenant faithfulness. It is not about moral perfection. Faithfulness under the Mosaic law did not require moral perfection. What it did require was heartfelt loyalty confession of sin, presenting of a substitutionary sacrifice, looking forward in faith to the Messiah, the suffering servant, and repentance. That's what it required. Now, that's why the scriptures can say, and this is by Luke. Luke is the one who's accompanying Paul on his missionary journeys, and he is writing his gospel so that all these Gentile converts who are coming to the faith through Paul's ministry, can have a gospel going to them that is acquainting them in detail about the life and ministry of Jesus. And Luke is the one who says that John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were, quote, righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the law blameless. He says they were righteous, not in their own eyes. They were righteous, not in somebody else's eyes. They were righteous in God's eyes. And why were they righteous in God's eyes? Because they walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the law blamelessly. 
Is he saying that they were perfect? No, he's not. He's saying that they had a heartfelt loyalty and love for God, that they were, had tender consciences, they had soft hearts, they were convicted of their sin when they sinned, they confessed their sins to God, they presented sacrifice looking forward to the Messiah, and they received His forgiveness, and they repented from their sin. That's what He calls being blameless in all the commandments of the law. That's what the law is requiring. That's what it's requiring. And so they were righteous in the eyes of God. So as, as God said in Malachi chapter 2, He called the covenant that He made with Israel a covenant of life and peace. That's what God called it. A covenant of life and peace. It's not a covenant of drudgery and work salvation. It's a covenant of life and peace. Of walking in the life and peace that God has freely provided. Why then does Paul call it a ministry of death? Because even though it held forth life and peace, it resulted in death because of Israel's chronic unfaithfulness. It held, for, it held forth life and peace, truly, but it had no power to give it. It had no power to make it happen. It had no power to change the hearts of God's people. So the law was a problem only in, sense, only in the same sense that a wedding vow is a problem to an adulterer. The law condemned Israel's spiritual adultery the same way a wedding vow condemns a cheating spouse's sexual adultery. What's the purpose of the wedding vow? Condemnation? No. The purpose of a wedding vow is love, joy, happiness, all of those things. But if you break it, if you're unfaithful to those vows then that which is intended to bring happiness and love and joy into your life will become a ministry of death to you. Next, the purpose of the new covenant is to take the law inside. That's what God says in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. What's the difference then? Is it going to be a new law? No, he says, here's the problem. They broke it. They broke it, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The difference in the old covenant that's being drawn here is that the, the law was outside on tablets of stone. And so you had some Israelites, individual Israelites, who were like John the Baptist's parents, who got it. Who really we, they were saved. They're just as saved as we are. And really for the same reasons. Even though they had, they had a lot less details than we do. Um, they're just as saved as we are. While some Israelites were like that. They were like David. They were like the psalmist. And so we can be pointed to their faith and hope and love as examples for us. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 does. Every person in the hall of fame of faith that Christians, New Covenant Christians, are pointed to as examples are all Old Covenant people. How can they be our examples to inspire us if they didn't live by the same faith that we do? If they weren't called to the same love that we are? But Israel as a whole, though, God's people as a whole, were always characterized by unfaithfulness and idolatry in the Old Testament. And the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the law out there on tablets of stones and the law in here on the tablet of the heart. That is the difference. And finally, 
Finally, how does Jesus accomplish that? How does he take... Why didn't he just do it in the first place? If that's the problem, the law out there on tablets of stone, as opposed to the law in here, written on tablets of heart, why didn't God just do that in the first place? Well, because it was complicated. It was complicated. You know, we get we go, okay, well, because he's got to die for sin. We get that much. He's got to die for sin. We get Isaiah 53, suffering servant. He's got to come, take our sins. He's got to die for us. We got that. It's more complicated than that. That's part of it. It's more complicated than that. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. When he says, look, I want to tell you the story of you and Jesus and the law. I'm going to tell you that story so you understand it. He starts talking about marriage. He says, I want to talk to you about the law of husbands and wives because I'm speaking to those who know the law. He says, if you know the law, this shouldn't be a surprise to you that I start talking to you in this analogy. And he, said, he explains in Romans chapter 7 that there's a, there's a, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if he dies, she's free to marry another. He says, if she's joined to another while he lives, she's guilty of adultery. And that's exactly what Israel was guilty of, joining herself to other gods instead of the true living and living God who saved her. But he says, if the husband dies, she's then free from the law of marriage so she can be joined to another. Now, Israel was guilty of adultery, as I've just mentioned. So her predicament in the Old Testament, which is a picture of our predicament, it was a Gordian knot. Israel needs to get out of her marriage covenant. All right, She needs out of it, not because it is a raw deal, but because she is incapable of being a faithful wife. And she just keeps racking up guilt. But she can't get out of her marriage covenant except by the death of her husband. And her husband is God who cannot die. And even if she could get out of that marriage covenant, she's still under a death penalty for her adultery. That's the Gordian knot. It's complicated. Now that's where Jesus, the God-man, enters into the equation. He is the solution to the Gordian knot. Paul says in Romans 7, Brethren, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. To whom? To him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. Now, many Christians today misread Paul to say that the law has died. That's not what he says. It's not the law that dies here. It is the first husband who dies. So who was the first husband in Paul's analogy? It was Jesus. Jesus, pre-incarnate. The pre-incarnate Son of God was the one we're told, both in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, that Jesus, pre-incarnate, was the one who appeared to Moses. He was the one on the mountain who gave the law to Moses. He's the one who stood before Moses on the rock to give the water from the rock. He's the one who followed Israel through the desert. Jesus enters into his wife's humanity so that he can die. He enters into his wife's humanity so that he can die. He takes her adultery upon himself and he dies under her sentence. In a single heroic act, Jesus pays for her sin debt and frees her from the marriage oath which condemned her. Because now that her husband is dead, now that God is dead, we can say it in that way, she is free. Her penalty is paid. 
and she is released from the law of that marriage. Well, why is she released from this? So she can be unmarried? No, so that she can be married again to a new husband. Who is this new husband? It's Jesus again. Jesus resurrected the new glorified man. She is joined to him. But doesn't this just put her back where she started with? Back in another marriage covenant? They're really the same one? Isn't just going to kind of recapitulate the Gordian knot? No. Because now she has a new spirit. Now she has a new heart. The heart of her husband has been given to her. The marriage oath, the law of love of her husband has been given to her by the Spirit. So that she now, the whole bride of God as a whole now, can begin to fulfill and to be faithful. It's pretty complicated. It's really more complicated than we think what Jesus has done for us. But when you think of it this way, that he's the first husband who enters into the humanity to die for her, to release her from that law so that he can marry her again and this time give her his spirit, give her a new heart, and put the law of the marriage on her heart. You start seeing, it's like, man, that is amazing. There's never been such a husband and a savior as that. And because of Jesus, you know what else? There's never been such a bride. There's never been such a bride. And that's who we are and that's who God is making us. So we see, when all is said and done, that the promise of Psalm 1 still applies. The promise of Psalm 1 still applies. The blessed one, the one who bears fruit, the one whose leaves shall not wither, the one who prospers in whatever they do, is still the one who loves the law of the Lord, who loves his word, and who meditates on it day and night. And you can still say with the psalmist to God, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.